Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. This week, we're going to talk about who's up and who's down in the never-ending game of snakes and ladders that is European politics. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. I'm delighted to say we have our full panel with us this week, Helen Thompson. I'm cheered up because um, West, West, Ham, yes, yeah, West Ham played extremely well against um, Chelsea and against... Turns out David Moyes is an yeah. absolute genius. Managed not to concede a goal. Chris Bickerton. Sledging on a proper, proper. old-style sledge. Did you go on it yourself? I did, yeah. Many times. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> and Chris Brook. I did my best to stay indoors during the snow. <laughs> I admired children out of the window who were trying to make snowballs even when there wasn't enough snow. Uh, but I worried about my black cat in Oxford, uh, because she doesn't like the snow, <laughs> but, but not too much. And Chris Bickerton, uh, if we could start with something you said a few weeks ago, which was December was going to be the point where we would be make or break for at least Theresa May's strategy, and I suppose in a way we were. But the thing I was also struck by is, as you described it, for the Europeans, this is a process. For us, it's kind of politics, high-stakes politics. For them, it's a process. But the process seems like that familiar one, which is the high-stakes game of the summit or the overnight meeting where the press are told it's going to be really hard to get a deal. It looks like it's all gone wrong. And then at the last minute, out of the hat, comes the rabbit. It's familiar from the Greek crisis. It's familiar from the Euro crisis. So I naively thought Brexit was different. Something about Brexit meant that it wouldn't be that usual European pattern of taking it to the brink and then finding a solution. And yet this one just looks like those others. Unless I'm missing something, it just reminded me of the classic way that the European Union kicks the can down the road. From the British perspective, I think it does have that sense of being on the brink. So we're Greece in this, right? Well, I suppose, yes. And Theresa May, I think, thought that she had some sort of deal. She then had to go back and renegotiate with the DUP, and there was lots of sort of cliff cliff edge aspect to the discussions. From the European side, I don't think that's really how it's being seen. I think there was a certain set of criteria that needed to be ticked off. The whole problem that Theresa May had with the DUP was a British affair, I think. The Irish were holding their line um, and hoping that the, the EU governments would stay with them, which they did. So I think from the European side, it isn't really as dramatic or as existential as the Greek crisis was. I mean, it isn't as eminently political, I think. So the, the Europeans could have walked away? Because the thing that it looks like, the reason it feels like the Greek one, is that it looked like a game of bluff and that in the end they were going to come to a deal. Well, the British reading of this, and this is what came out over the weekend, is something along the lines of the Europeans saw what a no-deal means and didn't want to go there. Um, I think that totally mischaracterises what has happened. And the post-deal unity amongst the, the members of the Cabinet and the Tory party as a whole, I think, reflects a pretty bizarre reading of what was actually agreed. I think from the EU's perspective, they had their red lines, they had their different packages that had to be agreed. The Irish one was a British problem. The British 
conceded, I think, pretty much on it entirely. On the EU side, you can see why they're satisfied, because they got what they wanted. On the British side, I think the outcome is essentially that in the absence of a very generous free trade agreement that covers all sorts of aspects, the default position that the government has accepted is to remain in the single market and the customs union. And that's the only way that the Irish problem can be solved. Now, from a British government perspective negotiating Brexit, that's a quite strange default scenario, but it's the one that they've signed up to. So I can see why the EU is satisfied. I find it pretty bizarre that the the British government and certainly the Brexiteers are saying that this is a triumph. It's manifestly nothing like that. I don't think it's a triumph, but I don't think it's as problematic from the British government's point of view as you're presenting it, in part because I think that the Irish question is simply being kicked down the road. What it would mean to say that if there were no deal that there would be essentially regulatory alignment in those matters pertaining to essentially to the Good Friday Agreement and Anglo-Irish cooperation in regards to the single market and the customs union. I mean, that's not something that is open to a considerable amount of interpretation. And I think that if you look at it from the point of view of what the Irish government wanted in terms of absolute hard guarantees, they have not got that from such fudge wording. I think while in some sense it's surprising that the Conservative Brexiteers have been as acquiescent as they have been, I mean, look at Ian Duncan Smith's piece in the Telegraph, where you might have expected him to have been quite stridently opposed to the agreement. I think the most significant thing is that the European Union, and at this point I think that means the Commission and the major EU governments, have shown... First, that they're not really interested in allying with those people in British politics who want to stop Brexit. And second, that they don't really want to rule out the possibility, at least for now, of there being some kind of trade agreement. And I think both of those were open questions before we got to last week. I mean, it's very difficult to interpret what's going on within the EU, not least because the EU is not a single actor in this. But I think it was a a plausible hypothesis that there were some who wanted to try to stop Brexit, and it was a plausible hypothesis that there were some who wanted to make sure that Britain got no trade agreement at the end of it. I think neither of those hypotheses are as plausible as they were prior to last week. So would you say that the biggest difference from a week ago is that the likelihood of Brexit not happening is vastly diminished? Yes, I do, yeah. That's what I take from it. I may be missing something, and my reading is the opposite. So the Irish question, in my view, was resolved in a, in a quite a simple way. From the Irish government's perspective, they wanted, as you said, firm guarantees that there would be no aspects of any sort of border control or border checks of any kind. The only way to guarantee that would be to guarantee that Northern Ireland remains within the customs union and the single market after the UK has left. Now, obviously, from a, a unionist perspective, that's unacceptable because that means essentially cutting off Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom more than just economically speaking. Now, the way that was solved was by promising that in the absence of a deal, there would be no return of a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland because the UK as a whole would not diverge significantly in regulatory terms from Northern Ireland and from the Republic of Ireland, i.e. would remain within the single market and the customs. Well, I read that. I mean, I mean, the text says that it's only for those matters that are crucial to Anglo-Irish agreement and the Good Friday agreement. And that is where there's a whole 
scope for interpretation about what those matters are. But this is where this is where I think the the issue becomes really important for the next phase, which is that people have done a study of how many issues are relevant here, and there are various estimates, but it's about 150 separate issues. There's a lot of things. It's not just um, uh, a few sort of outstanding trade-related issues. There's a vast array of things. The question is whether any sort of deal offered by the European Union in the form of a trade deal could encompass all of those issues such that that problem goes away once the UK negotiates a trade deal. As far as I can tell, given what's on the table from the EU's perspective, there's no chance that there would be a match between what the EU offers the UK and what are the issues affected on the Irish border. So that issue is going to have to be resolved down the line. But just to be clear, was the thing that you were disagreeing with the proposition that since a week ago, it's now much less likely that Brexit won't happen? My feeling is that it is more likely that Brexit won't happen. I had too many double negatives. That's clearer. (laughs) So my feeling is it's more likely that Brexit won't happen because the issue of whether the free trade deal offered by the EU encompasses all of the issues raised by the question of the Irish border, I don't think that is going to happen. Therefore, the question of what to do with the Irish border and how to manage the divergence, the regulatory divergence that's going to crop up once the free trade deal has been signed off will simply come up again. And the UK government has formally committed itself in that context to keep Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland as close together as possible, which means keeping the UK as a whole within the orbit of the single market and the customs union. But that isn't the same as staying in the European Union. It's good. We often agree too much in this podcast. That is a proper disagreement. No, so this is, would be a Norway-style fallback option. I agree there's a lot of scope for fudge in the language of the critical paragraphs found about paragraph 46, round about paragraph 49 of the joint report between the EU and the UK. But I think I lean more towards what other Chris is saying because on the two key points, the language stops fudging and that's the point about there being a guarantee of no hard border in Ireland and also the point that any change in the relationship between the Northern Irish economy and the rest of the UK single market requires the consent of the Northern Ireland Assembly and the Northern Ireland Executive. Now what that means is that one of the possible solutions to the Irish border question was to run the border down the Irish Sea. And the British government has formally conceded that both Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionist Party will have a veto on any move in that direction. That's where the language isn't vague. I think it's quite tough. And I I agree with Chris. It's very difficult. Whatever David Davis says about it not being legally enforceable, but merely a statement of intent, which he's backtracked on, whatever Michael Gove says about how you can always renegotiate these things in the future, that seems to be fairly unequivocal language. And I don't really see how the Conservatives who still want a pretty hard Brexit are going to work their way around that. I do think last week was a triumph for Irish diplomacy. So that means a hard Brexit is less likely, but it doesn't mean that Brexit is less likely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the phrases that was being kicked around last week was a Brexit in name only. I doubt it's going to be that. But then if it is going to be a fairly soft Brexit, at least initially, but it not being clear what scope there is for further development, then it's going to be, Theresa May tells us not to use the language of hard and soft anymore, but it's going to be a lot softer than people thought it would be a few weeks ago. I think Theresa May is right on this point about not using this hard and soft Brexit because it obfuscates what's actually an issue because 
Sometimes our Brexit is used to mean a Brexit that in economic terms ends up with Britain essentially engaging in trade with its present European partners on WTO terms. And sometimes it means leaving the single market and the customs union, but having a reasonably comprehensive trade agreement. And these are two extremely different positions. The second of which is the one that the government is trying to get to and has been quite explicit that it's been trying to get to for some time now. And the first is the one that it's trying to avoid. And I think we would do better if we specify which of these that we're talking about rather than falling back on hard, soft language. I think the WTO one has receded from view. I think the EU clearly wants to negotiate a free trade agreement. I just don't think it will encompass nearly as much as it needs to in order to resolve the problem of Northern Ireland. Therefore, we'll just be back to the situation that we were in a week ago in you know six to, to nine months' time. And there it will be really dramatic. And I think this is what Keir Starmer said in the House of Commons. He said, if there is even a prospect of violence returning to Northern Ireland, we have to put the option of remaining in the single market and the customs union back on the table. Now, I think that's exactly the kind of argument that's going to come up in the next six to six to nine months. So the other thing that's clearly changed in a week is Theresa May's position. I've been in California this week, but they're not talking about Brexit so much. Uh, I read the Times a few days ago, and just inevitably in politics, just at that point where the Times in a kind of, it was a columnist, but in kind of thundering mode was saying it cannot go on anymore. This is the weakest prime minister at the head of the weakest government in modern British history. The end is in sight. I thought, well, maybe I'll come back from California and there'll be a different prime minister. Come back from California and she is being treated as someone who has not just rescued her own position, but got her party back, right back in the game. And again, that seems to me extraordinary given what you've just described, that nothing's been resolved here. And yet her position looks from California to have been transformed by this. Everything depends on how long the right-wing newspapers are happy with what happened last week and what the Brexit here ministers decide they're going to do about things. And that means specifically Gove and Johnson? It means Gove, it means Johnson, it means Liam Fox, who's been extremely quiet over the weekend. Gove and Davis have said things, Davis has backtracked, Johnson is Johnson, Fox has been silent. But it's ministers like those four who will have to be meeting and planning what they're going to do, because what happened last week wasn't very good from their point of view. Now, it may very well be that they know that, in a sense, they're a busted flush. That is to say, the position they represent in the Conservative Party doesn't have the numbers to force the government, of course, especially now that the deal has been done. So it may be that we see, one by one, uh, them accommodating themselves to the new status quo. And I've seen speculation that Mr. Gove's very high-profile interest in animal welfare at the moment is his new way of positioning himself for a run at the leadership of the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party did very badly at the election, especially in the world of of social media, from people concerned about foxes and animal welfare issues. And he said it's going to be a good Brexit for animals. And he said it's going to be a good Brexit for animals. So I think there's a lot of recalibration going on. And Mrs May's future in part turns on how much trouble her right flank decides to make for her. But a lot of people are nervously watching to see who's going to make the first move. And I don't think it's an accident that we had David Davis saying one thing on Sunday and then walking it back on 
Monday, I think a lot of politicians have even more incentive than usual to say a lot of ambiguous things, contradict themselves, squirt out a lot of squid ink while they take the lie of the land and decide what to do next. But it's those decisions that are going to matter for the next few months. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. So we're recording this a day earlier than normal. A lot can happen in 36 hours in politics. Again, seen from California, and I guess I was literally the only person in California who was thinking about what would happen to Damien Green. But there was a report a few days ago saying that he would be gone by Wednesday. And then another one a couple of days ago saying he had been exonerated. And then Laura Kunzberg tweeted saying, no one knows. So we'll see. But a certain amount of Theresa May's fate does hang on that. She certainly would have been, will be, if it happens, severely weakened if her most senior ally is forced to resign. But if he isn't forced to resign and he can continue, is it not the case that the thing that the general election seemed to have destroyed, which was her authority, and her authority depending on her particular strengths, and her strengths were thought to be tenacity, a certain kind of doggedness in getting the job done, ignoring some of the froth of politics and simply ploughing on when people are saying, Teresa, what the hell do you think you're doing? There is a feeling that some of that has come back into focus, that we know what her weaknesses are now. She's a terrible campaigner. Don't put her up front if you've got a general election to fight. But some of her qualities as a politician look like, and this may be in the public's mind as well as in the politician's mind, back front and centre of British politics. That is how she made herself the, in electoral terms, remarkable Prime Minister that she was in the spring of this year. It seems like ages ago now, but it really was only a couple of seasons ago. She seemed to be somebody who rejected the way in which politics had been done, not just by her immediate predecessor, but by Tony Blair too, this fighting over the 24-hour news cycle, a kind of emphasis on brand politics if you like, over substance. She seemed to be somebody who got her head down and got on with things. And then it became clear during the election campaign that that still is a liability as a way of communicating in politics when you have to try to immediately to win elections. And I think she has a a certain kind of doubled down on her old advantages, if you like, by her present predicament. And that is, is that she's kind of out of the competition for power in the sense that she's going to be gone within, almost certainly before the next election. She looks like somebody who's doing this out of a sense of duty. And that was also a political quality that seemed to be one that she laid claim to before things started going um, wrong for her. So the fact that she looks like somebody who was able to get this agreement, such as it is, done in circumstances in which she, in some sense, is above the political fray, which means also that she doesn't have much authority, actually plays to her political strengths. I think the the reason why she's in a a somewhat stronger position in relation to the, the Brexiteers is that they have been forced to deal with the reality of whether they are looking to secure, if you like, a defensive Brexit or a transformative Brexit. And a transformative Brexit is incredibly difficult. The first thing that the Brexiteers need, and I mean by that the Conservative Brexiteers, is an economic landing place in order to make sure that it's possible to take sufficient numbers of the British electorate with them, that there is not going to be a campaign 
once we've left the European Union to get back into the European Union. For that, there has to be an economic landing place. And the fact that there is now the prospect of one, not anything like the guarantee of one, I think means that her position is strengthened as well. You say that she's the opposite of Blair in some respects. She's not playing the 24-hour news cycle game. But this does also look like a pretty textbook example of how to manage expectations in the sense that like I said, just at the point where some of the newspapers are starting to fulminate that this cannot go on, you produce not the giant rabbit out of the hat, but something that's sufficiently diverting to just change the narrative. And that is the way politics has skillfully been done for the last 10, 15, 20 years. And again, it goes back to where I started. It seems to be the way that EU high stakes negotiations have been done forever. This was a pretty skillful version of expectation game politics, wasn't it? What she's benefited from, I think, is that in these negotiations, and we've seen it in the past, it's always the executives that are involved. It's not at the level of parties or parliaments, it's at the level of government executives. And so to do those negotiations, to get the deal, it really put her in the position of the main authority, able to sign off on it, the one doing the negotiating, her and her team. And I think that rubbed off. So in that sense, there was a bit of luck, I think, in terms of timing. But politics also has a rhythm. And I think we've reached a kind of hiatus, possibly. Who knows, the seasonal sort of side, you know, the run up to Christmas. I mean, there's only so far that plotting and planning can go. Timing is very important. I think come January, as some of the effects of this phase one deal come out into the open, I think all this is going to return. I really think it's a pretty short-lived period of popularity for Theresa May. And I want to say at this point, other Chris, it doesn't really work when I say it so much. It's better when one of the Chris's says it. Corbyn, his position doesn't look as strong as it did a week ago, simply because, as I saw it, the strategy was to hold something together internally in the Labour Party long enough for the May government to fall apart. And I know probably when he was saying, I'll be Prime Minister by Christmas, he didn't mean it. And it was just kind of part of the exuberance of an amazing election result. But not only is he not going to be Prime Minister by Christmas, there is there must be a possibility here that they have to hold it together now for a couple of years. That's much, much more challenging than waiting for it all to fall apart. That's true. But I think it's still the case that Corbyn's long-run strategy of being very enigmatic about what he actually wants still, on balance, works to his advantage. It's true that it no longer looks as if the government is going to fall apart, the Tory party is going to split, the country is going to become ungovernable. Whether or not the Labour Party could then step in and govern it, and actually if there's a serious crisis of governability, I'm not sure the Labour Party right now is in an especially good condition to govern. But I suspect that even if this week looks good for May and correspondingly less good for Corbyn, it is her week. She got her deal. She has a bounce in the polls. I think that's all somewhat to be expected. But I think Corbyn has always preferred to keep a fairly low profile on Brexit and when he has the opportunity to talk about jobs. And it may be that this week that looks like a less good strategy than it's been in the past, But I think it's a strategy for a medium to longer term perspective. And I think he can afford to have weeks where he doesn't look so good. But do you think that, going back to Chris's point about politics having a rhythm, the medium to long term can extend all the way through a five-year parliament? It's not just about his age, but it's about the sort of 
impetus behind the Corbyn phenomenon, the energy behind it, which you can totally see running through another year, 18 months. And Theresa May may not, almost certainly won't fight the next election, although you never know. But a government that can hold itself together, even through a change of leader, to get to an election over a five-year cycle, that's a long time for the Corbyn project to maintain impetus and momentum. And there had earlier been a thought that this would be a transitional parliament for the Labour Party and that Corbyn will have done his work and then they're going to work out who. And that had gone away because they genuinely, I think, had been a thought that he might be Prime Minister in 2018. If it looks like there will not be a Labour government until at the earliest 2022, does the Labour Party have to start planning again for the Corbyn succession? I think the big question is going to be about how much internal warfare the party decides to settle upon. The question of deselection is the one that hangs over Corbyn's PLP critics. And that was killed off at the snap election because the party had to pick its candidates incredibly fast and they didn't have time to do the kind of bottom-up constituency party-driven selections that Mr Corbyn's supporters want. It will make a big difference whether deselections take the form of picking off a handful of Corbyn's most egregious critics and then basically telling the PLP that the the fight about the control of the party was fought in the previous parliament, they lost it, and now the party will slowly adapt to the new era, or whether the Corbyn grassroots will push for a much broader purge. And then there'll be a very fierce power struggle in the party, and the party will come to look divided again. And I don't have any sense of which way it's likely to go, that a lot of the discourse around momentum and so on is is potentially very misleading that there was all this anxiety about a party within a party and so on and so on and then at the election momentum just turned out to be a very large group of very well drilled volunteers who were engaged in a great deal of doorstep campaigning and similarly the uh, the papers are anxious at the moment about what's going on in Haringey where council deselections are underway but Haringey has been pushing through a very controversial development vehicle, the Haringey development vehicle, they call it. And it's not obvious that some kind of purge, if you want to call it that, although that's very loaded language, in London's most controversial borough suggests anything that's going to go on in the Labour Party as a whole, where the centre and the right wing of the PLP have been chastened, but there may not be much of a move actually to get rid of them. I think, though, that the first part of what Chris talked about is part of the second part of which you're talking about, i.e. the internal conflicts relate back to Brexit. There were, in some sense, two broad factions within the Labour Party where Brexit's concerned at the moment. The first part of it essentially wants to reverse Brexit and is, would like to find a way either of not leaving the European Union or to find a way of trying to get back into some version of it. And that obviously depends also on what goes on in the rest of the European Union after March 2019 and might hope that a long transition would be a way of staying in the transition long enough to get back into it. The other part of the party, the Corbyn part of the party, does not want that. It simply, it at least looks to me, it's playing a, a tactical game with Brexit at the moment, which is to snipe at the government for not staying close enough to the single market and the customs union without actually wanting to have a policy that's substantively different than what the Conservative government is pursuing at the moment. I don't think keeping those two positions in the same party beyond March 2019 without there being significant factional warfare about that is going to be very easy. 
I'm not sure how different those positions are. I think there is definitely division. And I suppose what Keir Starmer represents is the sort of the hardest line on the Remain side of the Labour Party. And that's become official policy and there was a struggle over that. But I don't think on the sort of critical side, on the Jeremy Corbyn side, there is a particularly deep and principled disagreement with that. I don't think that there is any vision of what an alternative which would be a Brexit alternative, would actually represent, certainly on that left side of the party. And so you have a bit of a struggle for power, but I don't think of it as being so decisive or coming to a head. I think one is likely to fold quite easily into into the other. But I think the question about Corbyn and its duration, it really goes back to whether Corbyn is a flash in the pan or whether this all reflects some deeper shifts within British society and on the left. But it's a curious power struggle in the Labour Party because both sides are compromised in the sense that Corbyn and John Macdonald lean more to the the Brexit-ish wing of the Labour Party, but their support is disproportionately young, urban, enthusiastic, the kind of people who are very pro-Europe. And conversely, the critics on the centre and the right of the Labour Party and the PLP, they're new Labour through and through, many of them. They're instinctively much more keen on the European Union. And the great majority of them are sitting in parliamentary constituencies with a local pro-leave majority. So it's very difficult to see how the battle lines line up. And that's why I think it's going to be less traumatic for the party than I think Helen thinks it's going to be. I think there's going to be a lot of muddling through. And I think one of the things we've seen over the last two years in the Labour Party is there's no serious appetite for a split. Partly that's the long-run reactions to the SDP split in the 1980s, that the various bits of the Labour Party do have a fairly strong sense that they're in it together. But I think if there were going to be a split, it would have come by now, and it hasn't. And I think the different bits of the party are committed to muddling through together, however much they don't like one another. So I said at the beginning we were going to talk about snakes and ladders for European politics. We're not going to do the whole of it, but we're going to do one other bit too, where a similar kind of tension is playing out, which is within the main Social Democratic Party in Germany, which is having to decide whether or not to go into a coalition with Angela Merkel, or at least whether to adopt a position that may or may not make that possible. It doesn't entirely depend on them. But within that dynamic, there is clearly a conflict between the membership that on the whole doesn't want to do it and the establishment of the party that, whether out of a sense of duty or out of a sense of tactical nous, thinks that they should try. And Martin Schulz is caught somewhere in the middle of this. And he has laid down a marker, unless this is already out of date, you'll have to tell me if it is, in which he said he is willing to potentially start these negotiations, but one of his red lines for this will be that he wants the European Union to become something like a United States of Europe by a date like 2025, which sounds to me fairly wishful on every level. So in saying that, is he basically saying something that makes a deal impossible? Or does he actually, is that is that a real thing? I don't think he's doing it to make a deal impossible. I think he's been put in a tricky situation. I'd say the self-interest of the party establishment is driving this versus some of the different instincts of the membership. Martin Schulz, I think, has U-turned and sort of backflipped and, you know, changed his position and now is falling back on his basic instincts and is trying to push those through as a 
way of giving himself some sense of direction in the negotiations. So this is just what he believes? This is what he believes. But there is a supreme irony here, which is that this is precisely the thing which is least evident from the results of the elections themselves. It's Uh, not what the German people want, right? It's not. And um, I think it's an unfortunate aspect of that kind of coalition building and that kind of electoral system where you get these things that emerge later at a stage of negotiations because they're the hobby horses of certain powerful individuals, but they correspond only very weakly to the actual results of the election. And voters were drifting to parties that were explicitly Eurosceptic parties. And so Schultz pulls out of the hat this idea of the United States of Europe, which, to be honest, for other reasons, may have some traction across Europe as a whole. But within Germany, it's just storing up problems for for himself and for Germany, because it just doesn't correspond to the results of the elections. I mean, I agree. I think there's two things that are in play here in European politics to get us to where we were started from over the course of the last 18 months or so, probably before that, actually going back to um, 2015 and the Greek and refugee and um, migrant crisis. On the one side, we have a, a problem with the Eurozone and a set of requirements really for the Eurozone to stabilise itself going into the future that require reform of the Eurozone and the kind of things that Macron has been talking about and now also part of Schultz's agenda. And obviously those two are in some kind of alliance with each other about these matters. And at the core of that, in some sense, is the question of like, what does the European Union do in a situation in which it has Eurozone members and non-Eurozone members? I think you can understand Brexit within the context of that clash, but it is an ongoing question for the EU and for the Eurozone. And if we look what's gone on in the last, even the last six months, we've seen, in some sense, three different positions articulated. Juncker, in his, his state of the, of the European Union, essentially said that the way forward for the EU is for everyone to join the Eurozone. Macron, in his big speech about Europe, essentially said the way forward is to create tiers of membership. And he was actually imagining a tier which might include still include Britain, but there certainly would be, if you like, a second tier in the EU, but out of the Eurozone. And Schultz has gone further in that speech because essentially he said the way forward is is that everybody agrees to a federal European Union and effectively being in the Eurozone, and then they will be kicked out if they don't accept that that is what being in the European Union means. Now, it seems to me that there's been uh, some urgency in the ways in which German and French politicians and the Commission have been engaging with this question of how do we work this, in some sense, strategic matter out. At the same time, we've had all these issues in various countries, democratic politics, about consent, whether they consent in the case of Britain to Britain's membership of the European Union, whether they consent to what Angela Merkel did during the, the refugee and the migrant crisis, whether they consent, in Germany's case, to the kind of fiscal redistribution effectively that Macron wants and I think what we can see is is that the democratic politics of trying to work these consent issues out is very difficult and in some sense the fact that the Germans have been unable to form a government after five weeks of negotiation after the last um, election is symptomatic about that but this strategic question doesn't go away and Schultz I think is kind of like saying, OK, we must engage with a strategic question of what kind of a European Union we can have in this predicament. And in some sense saying the domestic consent question, well, we just not worry about that at all. But everything that we know about what has happened in European politics over the last few years says the consent question isn't, isn't going to go away. And the Germans have got to construct a government to which there'll be sufficient consent in terms of the policy commitments that go in that coalition agreement. And at the moment, it's difficult to see where that's coming from. You've just spent a bit of time in Germany. How do Germans feel about not having a government? Because that's the other thing that's going on here, which is essentially at some point, 
someone's going to have to form a government in that country. It doesn't seem like to me that Germany's the kind of place that can blithely go along like Belgium did for a year or two, ungoverned. They like government, don't they? Yeah, I was quite struck. I mean, it's a long time since I've been to Germany, and I was quite struck how unnerved the people, at least that I was talking to in Hamburg, were at the fact that they didn't have a government and the fear that having a minority government that they seem to have of that is is that, you know, as we've said before, political stability is being part of German culture, and there is a, a distrust of democracy in some sense. That's that's part of that, and that the idea of having another election is not something that seemed to be particularly appealing. But at the same time, we can see that, given the position that Schultz has articulated, given the difficulties he's got with the party membership of the SPD, it's not easy to see how a grand co- another grand coalition is, is coming about. And then how do these things go together? If we look at it as a kind of a game of up and down, Mrs May has gone up a few places. Who knows where Martin Schulz is going sideways? Angela Merkel, the great dominant figure of European politics, looks weaker by the week, but that may be different in January. Macron is in a better position than he has been at any point, I would say, since he won his election. And there must at least be a possibility that while these moves up and down are going on, there is a steady rise of, as Helen just laid it out, the Macron position, and that 2018 could be his year. I look at the other Chris, Chris Bickerton, because I know you're sceptical. No, I think um, certainly at the European level, he has been lucky, I think. The German sort of situation seemed to be, on the one hand, not very favourable to him um, after the elections. The failure of that of those coalition talks then opened up the possibility of this grand coalition. Schultz's speech was in some ways, I suppose, music to Macron's ears. So at that level, yes, but I think the problem of European strategy versus domestic politics and domestic legitimacy questions is not uniquely German. As Helen quite rightly said, this is a pan-European problem, and the two are always tied together now, I think. In the past, they were quite separate, but today they are together. But isn't that Macron's advantage? He's the one European politician at the moment who looks like he can knit the two sides. I know it's it's all short term, but he's polling okay at the moment. He's getting his reforms, some of his quite, by French standards, radical Labour reforms through, almost by diktat, because there isn't really a functioning opposition in France. Is he not the one politician who looks like he might be marrying some of these wider questions with some democratic consent? I think so, as long as he's able to hold it together. And I think the structural changes in French politics, where you have this evisceration of two different sides, the creation of a huge centre ground, which he commands, the complaints about the authoritarian aspects of that have become you know, very frequent. And I think people are quite concerned about it. How it's going to play out, people don't know. But I think that's going to be his greatest challenge, I think, will be to carry things forward And he also has this air, which I think is partly inevitable, really, is that he has this slightly authoritarian tone in the way that he delivers his his views. And it comes partly from the fact that he just straddles this huge centre ground and isn't really facing challenges in the way that would force him to be much more defensive and much more cautious in his pronouncements. And in France, that doesn't play across very well. So I think 2018 will be, on the one hand, maybe some a year of strategic successes for Macron at the European level. But I think it'll be a real testing year for how French politics works when you have some of the traditional oppositions 
taken away without anything in its place and this big and slightly vague centre ground movement that even some of Macron's supporters who were the sort of um, the citizens, the bottom up sort of people, the ones at the sort of local level are beginning to complain and are feeling as if this whole thing has lost touch with what it was really meant to be about. And that I think is going to is going to be a big part of 2018. I think he's got an advantage on the consent side and the fact he doesn't have to worry about essentially any elections until 2022. And he won his election pretty handsome. Yeah, and, and that puts him in a very different position than everybody else in this respect. His big disadvantage is, is that every time he tries to engage with German politics, which he tried to do during the last weeks of the campaign as well, when he was trying to sort of suggest what coalitions would be best for France, essentially. And in terms of the reporting that we now see about his relationship with Schultz and the phone call that apparently went on between Macron and Schultz, he makes it more difficult to get what he wants in German politics. And that is his weakness. So we've started looking ahead to 2018 and we're going to do quite a lot more of that. And then in 2018, we'll talk about what actually happens. But next week, we're going to look back on this year some of our highlights some of our memorable moments some of the wow moments which we specialize in like oh we didn't see that coming do please follow us on twitter at tppodcast underscore my name is david ronsonman and we've been talking politics and i don't think it's an accident that we had davis saying one thing on sunday and then I don't think it's an accident that we had Davis saying one thing on Saturday and then walking it back on Sunday. Or No, it was Sunday or Monday. <laughs> Which days was it? I like the um, squirting squid ink. Yes, I was mixing my metaphors. I, I was going to say the lay of the land, squirting squid ink over the lay of the land. I just thought that's... Poetry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Is that right? Yes, it's fine. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.